to me, the whole sort of New York Post, Fox News, oh my God, look at what Semaphore is doing, sort of strikes me as a little bit of false outrage on their part. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Wednesday, March 8th. Today, Peter Hamby talks to Dylan Byers about a small media story that reveals a lot about how we Americans talk about China. Semaphore has partnered with an entity linked to the Chinese Communist Party as they expand their coverage to China. But is that actually as bad as some critics say it is? And later, Julia Alexander stops by to explain ESPN's potential master plan to become the one go-to hub for all live sports on streaming. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Dylan Byers. We are both in Washington, D.C. for a little puck event. Dylan and I both lived here for a period of time. How are you finding Washington, D.C. these days, Dylan? You know, I have a love-hate relationship with D.C. During the height of the political season, or when everyone's here, it can actually be, it can be just a wonderful place to be. And I think from, you know, a reporter's perspective, it's like shooting fish in the barrel. Mm -hmm. Perhaps because it is such an insular town and such a industry town, it has always, in my mind, lacked the dynamism of, of the world's great cities, be that New York or L.A. or London or Paris or what have you. And I, I sort of find it impossible to ignore every time I'm here. That said, I love DC. I spent four very formative years here. I'm grateful to be here. You know, everybody, different strokes for different folks. Fair. Um, Dylan, I want to ask you about a story that crossed my eyeballs late last week. This is a New York Post clip. Headline, Semaphore News Site. <laughs> it's a neg in itself, calling it a news site. Semaphore mm-hmm. partners with think tank, quote, linked to Chinese Communist Party. Is that true? Semaphore is partnering with the CCP? (laughs) What's going on here? So, yeah, so Semaphore is doing, look, Semaphore's ambitions here, certainly the the Rolodex of its CEO, Justin Smith, it, it aspires to be a global news organization with a lot of these sort of sponsorships and, and mm-hmm. events in a sort of Bloomberg model. And inevitably, it has a sort of fascination with China. And so, yes, it has these sort of, it has this sort of deal with this Chinese think tank that has reportedly has ties, as many things in China do, to the Chinese Communist Party. And so this has sort of raised questions about conflict of interest, particularly at this time when tensions mm-hmm. between the United States and China are growing stronger. I What I find so fascinating about this is that obviously we collectively as Americans in business, in the media, have 
our guard up about all things China, and perhaps that's reasonable. And you see it most notably when when people talk about TikTok. And on the Mm -hmm. one hand, we have this situation where we are supposed to be very scared of TikTok, and TikTok is this way that sort of China is sort of collecting all of our data while we sort of, you know, scroll through 10-second videos. On the other hand... It is not as though we've ever come to sort of a formal policy on how we are going to treat Chinese institutions, Chinese apps, Chinese think tanks. And so it's sort of hard to totally make sense of whether or not what Semaphore is doing here is a problem. I think the greater question is, like, do we have any sort of consensus on how we deal with China? No, not really. I mean, I think what is clear is that Semaphore is sort of making moves in China and it seems unapologetically. And Mm. perhaps that's fine. I think what would be useful here is if maybe they would just sort of come out and just own it. And then we could sort of move on. And I look, this isn't a major story. And I don't think I think the bigger story for Semaphore actually is whether or not its business is doing particularly well. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's just one of these things. It's like it, it, it's sort of this it almost feels like false outrage. And yet, on the other hand, yes, we should be cautious about our dealings with China. And we should be talking about what the actual acceptable posture is for media organizations or any businesses in China. But to me, the whole sort of New York Post, Fox News, oh, my God, look at what Semaphore is doing, sort of strikes me as a little bit of false outrage on their part. Yeah. So Semaphore is doing a China and global business initiative, basically a in-person event with thought leaders and business leaders in Beijing in October. And Justin Smith, co-founder of Semaphore, you know, came out after some, I guess, outrage from the from the right on this or criticism and and published a sort of explainer on why they're doing it. And he did say Chinese law requires foreign news organizations to engage with local partners to produce events like these. And so just to get inside the mind of a journalist or at least I think the way Justin and Ben would would defend this is it's kind of like when before Semaphore launched, they did this event in D.C. and hosted Tucker Carlson. And Ben did like a Q&A with Tucker. And a lot right. of people on the left were like, how could you give this guy a voice? And this might be a little too Richard Ben Kramer of them. But the thinking is sometimes you have to maybe deal with unsavory characters or negotiate with, with them to figure out how they tick, you know, and why they do what they do. And that that helps you explain how they work to people who don't watch Tucker Carlson every day or people who want to know more about China and do business in China. And so, and again, these things happen all the time in media too, in different ways. Like it's not hard to scroll through Axios or Playbook and see like sponsored content from not an unsavory advertiser necessarily, but like someone you might disagree with politically. (laughs) Right. Um, And that happens a lot. That's exactly right. And I think to go back to the the China question here, it's like the business community itself has not agreed to any sort of formal consensus on China. So if Mm -hmm. other businesses are working with China or working with groups that in China that might have some ties to the leadership, why not Semaphore? What, What is to preclude Semaphore from doing that? Now, look, there are sort of these like PR concerns, which is, look, Justin Smith used to run the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, which uh, started actually with a presence in China and then sort of carefully put themselves at a remove and move to Singapore. Maybe 
Justin Smith and Ben Smith have made the calculation that they don't need to apologize for what they're doing. And again, I think that's sort of fine. What stands out to me more than anything is just the, the people who are outraged by it don't seem to have fully explained why they're outraged by it beyond the sort of well-known offenses of the Chinese government. I actually, I mean, one thing that might hopefully happen here is you might actually have a conversation about what those lines are and, and uh-huh. what we're supposed to do. But as long as you have other, you know, major Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies out there who are sort of navigating their own China policy, I don't, I, I don't understand what precludes Semaphore from doing the same. There's also an interesting, this is a corollary conversation, but China is frequently talked about now like a lot of things in culture based on how your partisan identity defines it. And the more media organizations align themselves with political points of view. And I would say, you know, Fox and the New York post and the Murdoch empire, you know, let's call them right leaning. That's not a surprise. I think mainstream media generally mainstream news organizations are a little more left leaning these days, especially after Trump and COVID. And so it's just like interesting how China gets talked about. For example, TikTok's a good one. Trump, I asked my like dem- a bunch of my Democrat friends this on a, on a guy's trip we were on. I was like, go back and name one thing in hindsight you think Trump did that was actually good. And we settled mm-hmm. on the TikTok thing. <laughs> it's like uh-huh. Trump wanted to ban TikTok. There are legitimate national security concerns. By the way, these are shared by many Democrats, notably yeah, Mark Warner absolutely. in the Senate. But like saying you want to regulate and or ban and or spin off TikTok it sounds like a Republican talking point. It sounds like something Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio want. Ipso facto, the left thinks it's stupid and doesn't want to talk about the fact that this Chinese-owned company can influence American opinion at an unparalleled scale. It's not just that they collect data. It's that they can tweak their algorithm to get America's youth, but also voting age population to do and say certain things. That's a conversation worth having that is like independent of left and right. And I think the the same thing is true with with like the lab leak theory story that came out last week, you know, and the the, the Department of Energy and the FBI think with low confidence that the COVID originated in a lab, which right. is like a reasonable conversation to have. And a lot of mainstream news organizations were, quote unquote, following the science and the science requires the scientific method and research and takes time. And so maybe the science wasn't totally proven, but like mainstream organizations said it was verboten to talk about the lab leak theory in terms that like were credible. It had to be a conspiracy theory. It had to be something coming from the right. That was insane. Most people don't know much about China at all. And so their opinions, like a lot of things, get filtered through their political lens or what they read. And I agree with you. Like, I don't know where the lines are. This is a country that produces a lot of American goods. This is a country that produces a lot of Americans. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> you know? Yes. And, and their families. Um, and so it's, you know, it's um, it's more complicated than just like, oh, my gosh, they're partnering with the Chinese Communist Party. Not a great look. But, you know, once you peel back the layers a little bit, you can understand at least where they're coming from and that they're not compromising national security. Exactly. And and I, I think what I find so mystifying about this is the way that however many decades after the Cold War, we we are like, China is so often used as this sort of bogeyman type figure. Like, I remember back when I covered Facebook more closely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when Facebook was sort of being put on the ropes by Washington, by the media, one thing they would do is sort of talk about, you know, all of these threats of regulation on Silicon Valley are going to 
put us at a disadvantage against China. That was a very common narrative. And there was this thinking that amid all of this sort of anti-Silicon Valley fervor, you could sort of get people to be more sympathetic to Facebook and more opposed to or, or to Silicon Valley and more opposed to regulation if you you hung out the specter of China. And mm. look, there the, there is yet another conversation that warrants a, probably a great deal of thought and actual <laughs> research. But it is weird to sort of think that you live in a rational society and have people sort of just use China as that as a bogeyman. And you see it with tech policy, you see it with politics, you see it with um, questions of, of whether or not we should be using TikTok, and then you're seeing it here in the media with semaphores courting of a Chinese think tank. I'm not naive about the you know the Chinese government's tra- transgressions uh, and human rights abuses. However, I just, again, think that we, we sort of... It, it, it's this weird thing where you actually see the culture like being asked to sort of figure out a policy on China that government itself has not figured out that business itself has not figured out and somehow we are we are we are sort of trying now as i think we're entering this sort of new cold war mentality with China to have an opinion about whether or not they are good or bad actors and the truth is it is much much more complicated than that it is much more nuanced than that and perhaps maybe a uh, best case scenario for Semaphore is that these are the kinds of partnerships that maybe help figure that out. I suppose a more jaded view might say that they're just sort of benefiting from the business deal uh, <laughs> at a time when, when they probably need all the help that they can get. Yeah, I mean, and, and one of the promises of Semaphore from the get-go was despite, I think they launched in D.C. like covering political news, but like they want to be a global brand and a global newsroom and they already have devoted resources to Africa um, and it's clear they want to be a player in China or at least explaining China and so I encourage people to read Justin Smith's little note on Semaphore explaining why they did this. Dylan, I will see you this evening. Thanks, buddy. I'll see you this evening. Looking forward to it, Peter. Coming up next, I talk to Julia Alexander about what's next for ESPN and the future of live sports on streaming. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right. I found that on Etsy. It's amazing. 
Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back, everybody. I'm joined by Julia Alexander to talk about why it's so hard to find live sports on streaming, why it's still so expensive and complicated to replicate the cable experience, and what ESPN could possibly do to fix it. But first of all, hello, Julia. Welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Good. So Alex Sherman at CNBC reported the other week that ESPN is exploring how it could become sort of a hub or a landing page for live sports on streaming, not just for the games that are actually on ESPN, but also the games and the leagues that are on other services. Kind of like how you can access Showtime or Stars through Apple or through Amazon Prime. And then those services get a cut of the subscription fee. This all makes total sense to me, but walk me through the exact problem that ESPN would ostensibly be trying to solve here. Yeah, it's a really interesting and complex issue because the the issue that ESPN is trying to solve for is kind of Google and then some, right? It's it's discovery. So if you have a, take an average sports fan, the MLB season is coming up. MLB games have gotten increasingly fragmented. And so trying to find where your team is playing on which service or on which network has become a fun game uh, for, for diehard fans and casual fans. And so what ESPN is trying to do is effectively go from the Googleized version of like, where is so-and-so team playing or how can I watch so-and-so team to going one step further and integrating that with an idea that to your point, Amazon and Apple have really invested a lot of time and effort into, which is to offer the ability for consumers to kind of go to ESPN, see that it's playing on Peacock or on Paramount Plus and say, hey, you can sign up for these platforms from us. So you could just click on it and then it would bring you to the sign up and you would sign up. And ESPN would hypothetically take a percentage of that sign up. So what makes sense about this is that if ESPN is the centralized sports hub, effectively, if people are going to ESPN.com to find something as opposed to Google, ESPN is going to lose 100% of the consumer attention on that game anyways, because it's not playing on ESPN. They might get some attention on the fantasy side of things. They might get some attention from people on their phones who are keeping up to date with what's going on via the app. But in terms of the actual viewership for the game, they were going to lose out on that entirely. So if they can reclaim 10%, you know, or even 5% of potential revenue that they were going to lose regardless, because that is all the way on a different platform, a different network, then it makes sense for ESPN. Low investment, high reward potential. Yeah, so this solves a, a really important discoverability issue for consumers. And just for context, of course, all the big streaming services are now dipping a toe in live sports, like Apple has Major League Soccer, Amazon has Thursday Night Football, Peacock has um, Sunday Night Football and Sunday Morning Baseball. But it's really like a balkanized experience. It's confusing. It's complicated. I think about somebody like my dad, who still has a, a cable subscription, mostly just so that he can browse through live sports. He doesn't know exactly which games are on when, but he, but he enjoys being able to turn on the TV and find those games. If he were to replace that experience now with a hodgepodge of streaming services, it would be really confusing. Like he, he would have to juggle five or six different services. It would be expensive, not quite as expensive as the full cable package, but it's not a great replacement for that experience right now. Right. What ESPN is trying to solve for 
is actually a casual fan base. Diehard fans pretty much know where their teams are playing at any given moment. Like if you ask me what team is playing on a network um, within the NFL league uh, during the NFL season, I kind of know where it is. There's strong marketing on it. There, there's a lot happening on it. You know, baseball, again, I'm going to Google, but I'm not going to go to ESPN to find out where, uh, how to watch the Mets or whatever it might be. I'm just going to Google that up. So what ESPN is trying to solve for is this kind of casual fan base that is looking to discover how to access a game or a specific sporting event during any given time. The problem with it is that casual fans want to tune into sporting events during ephemeral moments. So a great way to think about this is if you have a moment where everybody is like texting in a group chat or everyone's on Twitter and all of a sudden you see a bunch of like, whoa, oh my God, can't believe it. What people are going to want to do is see that. And so if they can't just open their TV sets because they're cord cutters, they can't just go and do the cable thing. If they Google, or let's use ESPN, if they use the ESPN hub to try and find what they're going to watch, the next thing they run into is the bigger problem, which is the paywall. It's you still have to convert those casual fans into paying $10 or $11 to catch this, this moment. And by the time they sign up for another streaming service, the moment is over. They're not necessarily going to spend the rest of the quarter or the rest of the inning watching this game that might not necessarily be as interesting as that moment that they wanted to be a part of. So now you have huge turn issues. And beyond that, they might not necessarily want to pay for that, especially when video is uploaded to Twitter 30 seconds after the play happens and you can just seek it out there. Yeah, I guess I'm less skeptical than you. I mean, I have an Apple TV box right now, and I know that sort of puts me in the minority. More people have Roku and some other um, OTT hardware. But but with Apple right now, you do get push notifications when there's a a close game on that allows you to then jump to a service that's showing that. So I do wonder if that is solvable at like the iOS level that the Apple TV or the Roku can push people into the ESPN hub and then to those games. And then on the other side, I mean, I agree with you. There's definitely subscription fatigue out there. But, you know, personally, I found myself subscribing to a lot more services through Apple since they make that so simple. You know, you can sign up for Stars or Showtime with just about one click. You're immediately in there and then it's pretty easy to cancel again. I have to imagine that services like Peacock, that's not actually what they want is to like encourage the quick churn behavior for consumers. They want people to subscribe and they want live sports to hold them across longer durations of time in between seasons of shows that they might be coming for. But it does seem like a lot of these things could be solvable in the future. Well, I think you actually bring up a really good point about why it gets frustrating. And the ability to create a seamless transition from this is happening to now I am watching is exactly what the streaming services have to figure out. Because to your exact point, if you know there was something happening and you have cable, you just open it up. You're just like, I'm going to go find the game and there it is. And if you don't have cable, let's use the OS example because I think it's a great one. I also have a Apple TV set. I live in a very pro Knicks household, despite me being a Raptors fan. And so we get push notifications all the time for when something is happening with the Knicks. If we take that analogy one step further, if let's say it's a ESPN is now tied into Apple's OS system, let's say that's happening, um, which is another layer. Then you have to go to ESPN, you're opening up that app. Then once you're in that app, it says, okay, in order to watch this, actually, you need to sign up for this. So then you go and click it. Ideally, that is part of an Apple channel. 
ideally you're like, it's a one-step thing and I might have to pay, but okay, I really want to watch this, so I'm going to do it. If it's not part of an Apple channel, now you're an ESPN hub and it's saying, actually, it's unavailable on this device. You can't really buy it from here. You have to, it just gets really complicated and then that becomes frustrating and it turns people off. And I think this is the main issue is if that is the experience and it's, you know, three, four, five steps, uh, clicking steps plus paying $10, even if it's just for one game, because you're not actually a huge sports fan, so you're not really going to watch anything else afterwards. You're not really interested in Peacock. You're more of a Netflix person, so you're not going to open up Peacock regardless. Um, you're just going to go back to Netflix. The alternative, especially for Gen Z, younger millennials, younger um, skewing millennials, and Gen Alpha, the new generation that's coming up, is just to open your phone and be like, is this on Twitter? Is this on Reddit? Is it on TikTok? And again, as someone who kind of watches television, when I'm sitting down to watch television, I have three screens going at any time. You know, it's like I've got YouTube playing on, on my iPad, I've got a show on or I've got a game on my TV, and then I typically have my phone open. If I'm on Twitter, sites like The Ringer or accounts, including accounts like the NFL and the NBA, upload those moments 30 seconds later. And so I can actually just catch the moment, add to the commentary because consumption is now, you know, tied into kind of interactivity and um, posting beyond just consuming. You still run into longer churn issues down the road, which is whenever I talk to people who are trying to figure out this problem, that's what they tell me all the time. Number one issue is the conversion funnel. Number two issue is the churn issue. But it's like... The casual fan base, which also represents a younger fan base who's coming into sports obsession or who's coming into sports consumption, are finding new ways of using mobile devices and the internet to really engage with those sports. And I think the sports media companies are trying to solve for a behavioral shift by just shifting the form of distribution and not actually addressing the core issue. Yeah, you make two really good points there. One, um, it totally does depend on whether the next generations, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, put a similar premium on actually watching these moments in real time, watching it alongside other fans, or whether maybe they don't really care so much and they can watch it on Twitter 30 seconds later, they can find a stream on Reddit two or three minutes later, and, and that's enough. You also make a great point that like this totally, it has to be frictionless for this to work. If it's complicated, if it's kludgy, people are not going to go for it. But you know, you made a great point in your reporting on this that you know, if any brand is going to pull this off, it's going to be ESPN. You know, they, they still have to actually solidify these potential media partnerships. I, I think those conversations are happening now. They don't yet have deals in place for this concept. But there's no other brand out there that, that can do it. ESPN is, is the worldwide leader in sports. If anyone is sort of positioned in the marketplace to be a hub for this, they're going to be able to do it. Exactly. And I think as we've been talking about throughout this conversation, Apple and Amazon have thrown money at this. Apple specifically at sports. Apple has specifically invested millions of dollars in trying to figure out how they can kind of act as the, you know, buzzer moment to convert people into paying through Apple channels to access sports, right? And especially now as they bring MLS to Apple TV Plus, as they have baseball and Apple TV Plus, finding ways to kind of cut into viewers' attention time as they're watching something on Netflix or, or YouTube or whatever it might be and bringing them over into the Apple ecosystem. They really are trying to do that. And I think it says a lot that when this story comes out when, and, and when, you know, when I'm talking to people, everyone kind of points to like, well, it hasn't worked. Like it's not necessarily something that they're see we're seeing huge behavioral 
shift patterns in and therefore is showing proof of concept and what they're trying to do. Amazon has been a little bit less in terms of using channels for sports. They're, they're much more like, to your point, here's Stars, here's HBO, you know, you can kind of come and add it on top of your Prime subscription. As they get more into sports within Prime Video, I'm sure we'll see more of that push. But ESPN, the advantage it has is the app, is the website. Uh, if anyone's listening who plays fantasy, I play fantasy sports all year all year round. Like ESPN and Yahoo are just open on my phone. They're open on my computer. It has my attention regardless. And so if I'm on there and I am trying to figure out where a game is happening and they have an option, I have to sign up for it. The advantage that ESPN has is that they're not losing anything on it. That game was not on ESPN to begin with. It was not like they are losing that consumer base to someone else and they were originally hosting the game. They're just hoping if they can convert even 5%, 10% of people who come to the site, that's additional revenue in their pocket for not really doing much. And so in that way, I think it's a great business model. Well, Julia, I'll leave that up to, to smarter business minds like yourself to figure that out. As a consumer, I love the idea. So I sort of hope that they're able to pull this off. Thanks as always for stopping by. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.